Let us pray together. God of light, open our eyes that we may see glimpses of truth you have, that we might open our eyes, illumine us, spirit spirit divine. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Well, that was charming and wonderful, and I am grateful to our confirmation and journey to adulthood class for opening up the scripture for us. Can anyone tell, tell me what just happened? <laughs> Neither could I two weeks ago. It's a confusing story. It's a complicated story that's at least in three or six acts. In fact, if you can't make it out, you're in very good company. And I'd also say that probably any preacher could come up with 10 or 20 sermons on this text alone. I read one in which the conclusion seemed to be that whether you have belief or disbelief, does it still matter? Okay. I've come up with something which may not go to the theological heart of the text, but is something that I feel passionately about as I read this story. It's a crazy story, and it makes me think of two weeks ago when I met with our confirmands. They've been saving up some questions for the pastors to answer. First question they had was about Christian science, because one of them has family members who practice Christian science. And the next question was, why do bad things happen to good people? And I thought, oh, Jesus. (laughs) I fear they expect me to have all the answers. And I'm figuring this out along with the rest of you, as have theologians for centuries. But we dug into it together about why bad things happen to good people. And I have to say that's where this text takes me. I'm very curious about what Jesus says to the disciples right off the bat This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. Now that may be a little bit of a hard theological nugget for you and me to swallow. You see, perhaps obvious in this reading, but in ancient world, blindness was considered a curse from God, a sort of karmic curse, something you might have inherited from your parents or even way back down your family line. And I said to the confirmands in Journey to Adulthood class this morning, the fact that most of us don't believe that anymore might signal the success of Jesus in this story. Because what Jesus is emphasizing here is the grace of God and how it works in all of our lives. But it made me question about the ways that we expect and want life to be versus the way it actually happens. It actually made me more curious about the blind man's life before this healing episode, when he had to beg on the streets, when he was considered to be separated in shame, when he's considered to be the product of sin, either his own or someone else's, and the way he carried that around with him wherever he went, like a yoke on his shoulders. I'm aware of our small, unrealistic, self-driven and willful expectations for how life is supposed to go. And I have one small personal example and then some larger examples I want to give you. Now, I mentioned this obliquely last week and in my Easter sermon last spring, but many of you know I, had, I slipped on the ice last winter. 
Someone sent me a text this week, and seeing a little bit of ice on the sidewalk, they said, I bet you're enjoying this winter more than last winter. And I said, well, actually, I, that's very kind of you, but I recall that the blizzard of 2015 didn't get started till February, and that I actually slipped on the ice four days before spring. So we still have a ways to go. As I wrote to you at the time, my injury helped me realize a few things. I had had a previous fall on Christmas Day, no symbolism in that, and I told my mother about it. I damaged my shoulder, and she said, Kent, you need to slow down. And when this accident happened, the EMT dropping me off in the emergency room said, buddy, you need to slow down. <laughs> and then Robert went to a massage therapist guru we go to who said, he needs to slow down. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I get the message. I need to slow down. Now, I was laid up on crutches. You were very generous to me. You gave great meals and said prayers for me. Robert wanted me to limp longer so more meals would come into the house. And at some point, about three or four months into my healing, I realized I was grateful for this experience because it did teach me the necessity of slowing down. I'm approaching the ice much differently this winter than I did last winter. And also, it taught me the value of valuing one's body that a very small little tendon in your knee can can incapacitate you and keep you from walking. It made me grateful for the healers I encountered and all the prayers that sustained me. It taught me to value life and my body and just living much more than I had before. One of my good evangelical friends said, it was very kind of God to give you this lesson. It will make you a better pastor. Some of my friends thought I should give her the holy finger, but I said, no, I get it. I get it because, as I wrote to you at the time, I often go to pray with people who do surgery, but I'd never been under the knife before. And I have just a little bit more empathy of what that's like. So thank you, God, for the professional development. I was sharing this with a doctor friend this week who told me about the 19th century physician, Canadian... Dr. William Osler, who, when asked what is the secret to longevity in this life, he said, get a chronic disease and learn to take good care of it. Apparently, he wrote one of the landmark textbooks on pediatrics, and he's one of the founders of Johns Hopkins Hospital. What Sir William, Dr. Osler, meant was when you have a chronic illness it forces you to pay closer attention to your body than you normally would. And in so doing, you benefit all the parts of your body. And your overall health can actually be improved. He went on further to say that when you have a chronic disease, your body becomes more sensitive, more vulnerable, more demanding. And this makes you a better listener to your body. You become more aware, and you learn to take care of it better caused me to wonder, what does this mean for our souls? What causes us to pay more spiritual attention? What causes us to wake up and see the things that we are too blind to to notice? Some of you know that Robert used to work at the Perkins School for the Blind, which is considered one of the great institutions for deaf and blind and multiply handicapped education in the country. And through that school, we met a gregarious, charismatic, athletic young guy named Louis. Now, at nine years old, Louis was on the playground. 
His family was mixed up in some various activities, some of which were not going to be safe or very sustaining for Louis. And he got into some sort of fight or altercation on the playground, and another kid hit him over the bat, or over the head with a baseball bat, and it blinded Louis for life. And that's how he ended up at Perkins. Later, Louis met one of our nieces who has a muscular neural situation in which she, has, she doesn't move as agilely as one might, and it may someday put her in a wheelchair. And when we told Louis about her, he said, Oh, poor kid. That's a horrible thing to be saddled with, not being able to move. And we said, um, Louis, you're blind. And he said, Yeah, but I can still run. I can still throw a ball. You see, at Perkins, they have a way you can run along the track holding onto a wire, or they have ball games where there's a bell in the ball and you can hear where it is and kick. And Louis, this jock, valued that, that he could do that. He went hiking out in Wyoming with Robert. He couldn't see all the vistas, but he enjoyed every moment of especially the zip line flinging through the air. And as Louis said this to us, I wondered, is this somehow the mighty acts of God displaying themselves through him. Or I think of our dear friend Mark, who's in federal prison just about 30 miles from here. He gave his confession in worship last summer about how he got into this situation, how he was a part of wire fraud, and how he is now there serving time. He was given six years and over $3 million of restitution. He'll be about 70 years old if he fills his whole time. He's not sure how he'll make all that money back. It's a desperate situation. Some of us go to visit him. I've been three times. And every time I greet Mark, I say, how are you doing? And he says, with no trace of irony and absolute enthusiasm, I'm doing great. You see, he's decided to treat his incarceration as a spiritual retreat. And he gets our orders of worship every week and the pastor's blog. I just sent him our prayer curriculum from two years ago. He welcomes our cards and letters. Some of you have written him and visited him. He still feels attached to this community. And he has told me stories about the power of prayer in his life that astound me. He believes that he deserves a punishment. Although he got more than his lawyers asked for. And those of us who were at the hearing heard the moralizing lecture the judge gave him. But he has a frame of mind of how he's going to treat this time. And I have to tell you, every time I go to visit him, he is my spiritual teacher now, telling me stories of prayer that some of you wouldn't even believe about pancreatic cancer stopped in its tracks or someone's legal situation that was solved in unbelievable ways all through the power of prayer. It plays with my rational mind, but I'm listening really closely for the mighty acts of God. Well, this story makes me think about Rob, who at age 21, following college graduation, went on a water skiing outing with his friends at the local lake. He was reporting for duty to Army the following week. It was 1966, and our Vietnam War was raging, and he was obligated to show up, most likely to be shipped off in a matter of months. All was going fine. No fun, celebratory, beautiful July day until Rob fell landed wrong in the shallow water, hit his head, broke his neck, and was paralyzed for the rest of his life. After months of agonizing recovery, 
He was able to regain the use of his upper limbs, but not quite the fine motor skills of his fingers and hands. He managed, though. He started a career in finance, a career that would sustain him through his adulthood in his prime working years. He met Marcia, the love of his life, married her, and until her death last year, they were together 35 years. They raised their son David together, and a year and a half ago, at age 72, Rob retired after 49 years as a tax consultant with John Hancock. Now, he will tell you that that water skiing accident saved him from being killed in Vietnam. Shortly after I arrived here, we did an interactive sermon in worship about our spiritual gifts, meditating on 1 Corinthians 12, and we paired people up to preach to one another, and then we heard aloud together the various spiritual gifts in our midst. And Rob raised his hand right where he's sitting today, and when I turned to him, he said, I have the gift of fortitude. And I thought to myself, brother, indeed you do. In our many conversations over the past several years, I've discovered Rob to be one of the kindest, most spiritual, most grounded people I know. And he shared with me that it's not always easy, that he doesn't always feel like the brave, cheerful face he presents to the world. But he's learned a lot about faking it until you make it, about returning again and again to your deepest values, about finding courage amid your anxiety and fear, about learning to rely on the higher power and take it one day at a time. And despite the horrifying accident that happened to him, His life has been a testimony to the indomitable human spirit, and I would argue to the role of God, the ultimate life giver, in maintaining that spirit. When I asked him about telling this story to you today, he reminded me that the first verses of Romans 5 are his favorite. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. We boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God, and not only that, we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Now, these are just a few of the stories that I know of that are in our midst. You all have stories of suffering, of things that didn't work out how you wanted to when God was testing you. The Buddhists have built a whole religion about what to do with the nature of human suffering. But I believe we in Christianity often avoid it. You know, I know people who say, if you have Jesus in your life, everything will all be better. And there are those of us acutely aware of the complexity of life who scoff at that notion... Because we find that kind of theology, that kind of Christology, far too simplistic. But I would submit to you that they are not far off the mark. It's not that Jesus takes away all our suffering or our setbacks or our hardships or our disappointments or our disillusionments. Those are inevitable of living this human life. It's that Jesus, I believe, teaches us another way to be. A way to be focused on the eternal rather than the temporary. A way to be focused on the mighty acts of God and how they live and breathe in us and not the petty acts of human beings. The ways to be focused on the glory of the life-giving, soul-enriching endurance of divinity 
rather than the inevitable failure, injury, decline, and death of these fragile human bodies. At the end of this whole interaction of the Pharisees and Jesus and the blind man, Jesus says these words to them, And now that you say, we see, your sin remains. As I told the classes when they're rehearsing it, you can almost hear a bump, bump, bump at the end of that. But it's what haunts me about this passage. Because I wonder how many of us are paralyzed by our own fear and anxiety. How many of us are blinded by our own fragile egos and our need to control everything around us? Those of us who are imprisoned by any deep-seated, well-thought-out, well-taught self-criticism and even self-loathing. Because I don't believe God wants us to live like that. I believe the most powerful verse happens in the next chapter in John. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Or Irenaeus who said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And I'm certainly not suggesting that we should go out and seek suffering. But I am saying it is inevitable in some form, to greater or lesser degree. And where I believe we always have to look and ask the questions is, are, where is God in this? Perhaps in the next room or across the street or right behind my back. And how does God look at this chapter I'm in? How will I look at it at the end of my life when all has been said and done and I have nothing left to do but to die and join my Creator? And what am I supposed to learn from this? You see, I believe that God often gives us a curriculum that we didn't sign up for. God often gives us the organic chemistry of despair. Or the complicated trigonometry of forgiveness and resentment. And all sorts of courses that you and I didn't ask for. But what God does give us are tutors and study partners along the way to figure it out. We are travelers on a journey, fellow pilgrims on the road. We are here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. I will hold the Christ light for you in the nighttime of your fear. I will hold my hand out to you and speak the peace you long to hear. Amen.